welcome to Unexplained Extra with me, Richard McLean Smith, where for the weeks in between episodes we look at stories and ideas that for one reason or other didn't make it into the previous show. In last week's episode, A Story of Ice and Fire, we explored the haunting tale of the unknown woman whose burned body was found in the mountains on the outskirts of Bergen in West Norway in November 1970. Though the case was well documented at the time, it was largely thanks to the tireless work of a team from Norway's public broadcaster, NRK, led by journalist Marit Higroff, that this story was brought back into the public eye. You can read more about their 2016 investigation into the case on NRK's website, nrk.no, but also through a podcast of their own titled Death in Ice Valley, which was released in 2018. As part of their investigation, a more lifelike composite of the woman's face was released alongside a renewed request for information from Interpol. Though it failed to solve the mystery, it did encourage one man from the commune of Forbach in northeastern France to come forward with an intriguing story. The man claimed that back in 1970, when he was 22 years old, he embarked on a summer romance with the unknown woman, who he recognised from the composite image, only months before her death. He even produced a photo of her to prove it, which many believe is indeed the woman in question, often referred to as the Isdal woman. He claimed she had a Balkan accent and was very secretive about her life. What she did apparently reveal, however, was that she had several papers that enabled her to travel freely between East and West Germany. The man also claimed to have seen numerous wigs inside one of the suitcases she was travelling with. The strangeness of it all had even prompted him to consider calling the police, believing that she might be a spy, only to decide against it at the last minute. However, her true identity remains elusive. There is an inevitable fascination with the unidentified, whose identities we feel almost obligated to uncover, whether it be to help solve a potential crime that has been committed against them on their behalf, or simply because we think it might honour them in some way to not let their names be forgotten. And yet, as in the case of the Isdal woman, when someone seems to work so hard to maintain their anonymity, It could be argued that retaining their anonymity at all costs was what they might have preferred. All of which brings to mind one especially strange story about an unknown individual. It was just approaching 3pm on May 10th, 1973, on a bright but chilly spring day in the quiet town of Kenora, in southern Canada, when a man walked into the Canadian Imperial Bank of Commerce on Main Street. About five foot four in height, and dressed in a pink plaid bush jacket, it was hard to see much of his face other than the sprawling red beard under the small, checkered fedora that he'd pulled tightly over his head. Bank manager Al Reed was busy on a call when the man who had a large duffel bag slung over one arm and a satchel over the other, walked straight past the queue of people outside his office and plonked himself down in the chair opposite his desk. Despite Al's protestations that he was busy, the man refused to budge. 
When Al asked him what he wanted, he pointed to a pistol peeking out of his top pocket and said calmly to the startled manager that he wanted all the money in the bank. The man then told Reed to call the local police and inform them that a robbery was taking place. A few minutes later, Constable Bill Grinnell, Corporal John Lechkin, Inspector Walter Michalishan and Corporal Norm Baxter converged at the bank to find a steady stream of people hastily leaving the building. The robber had told them all to evacuate the premises. Unsure what to do next, the four law enforcement officials stepped inside the bank to find the robber, who by now had pulled a silk stocking over his head, standing behind one of the counters alongside Al Reed with some kind of contraption in his hands. The man addressed the police and invited them, one at a time, to look inside his satchel, which he'd placed on top of the counter. As they each approached to take a look, he explained that what he had in his hand was a dead man's switch, which, as the officers soon realised, was wired up to not only a detonation device inside the bag, but also the six sticks of dynamite next to it, enough to blow them all up in an instant and probably take the bank down with them. As customers and staff from the bank streamed into nearby bars and restaurants, it wasn't long before word got round that a robbery was taking place on Main Street. Dennis Belleville, the manager of the local radio station CJRL, just so happened to be walking down the street when he saw the stream of people fleeing the building and the police turning up. Having realised what was happening, he ran immediately to the radio's offices, only a few buildings down, and gathered his team to discuss what they should do about it. Minutes later, the crew were busy threading cables through rooms as two of the station's reporters, John Berry and Chris Paulson, took up positions, leaning out of two second-floor windows in order to commentate live on the drama unfolding below them. Back inside the bank, with the robber having ordered three of the police to leave the building, only he, Al Reed and Corporal Lechkin remained. With the dead man's trigger clutched tightly in the robber's hand, the other men could only watch in horror as he casually transferred it from his hand to his mouth so he could toss the duffel bag to Corporal Lechkin. Then, grabbing the trigger with his hand again, he ordered him to empty the cash drawers into it. Then turning to Reed, he told him to open the vault. When the bank manager realised with terror that he needed a second code to open it, which he didn't have access to, there was a tense standoff as Reed was forced to call up a colleague to procure it, after which he was eventually able to open it. And moments later, he and the robber were inside, emptying out the contents of its numerous cash boxes. Once he'd gathered everything he needed, the robber ordered Lechkin out of the premises and set about planning his next move. We all deal with Sunday scaries, right? Sunday scaries are those, oh no, stressful, nervous, can't sleep, dreadful feelings that hit you on a Sunday evening when you think about the impending doom of work tomorrow, or school, 
or frankly just life. Unfortunately, you can feel that same pit in your stomach any day of the week. Sunday Scary's CBD gummies were made to defeat the crap life throws at us. These are the perfect CBD gummies for professionals on the grind, super mums and dads, students, party animals, regretful drunk texters and everyone in between. 2022 is all about self-love and taking better care of yourself. So whether you need to take the edge off, calm your racing mind, sleep better or just chill, Sunday Scaries CBD gummies are the answer. Look, we all have the right to live scare-free. So let me help with my 25% discount. Visit sundayscaries.com and use my promo code UNEXPLAINED for your discount. That's promo code UNEXPLAINED for 25% off at sundayscaries.com. Officer Don Millard arrived at the Kenora police station, ready for the evening shift, just in time to hear the station chief, Charles Engstrom, relaying the robber's latest demands to all those on duty at the time. As Engstrom explained, the man was armed with at least two guns and a bag full of dynamite and had requested a driver and pickup truck to pick him up from the bank and take him to an as yet undecided location. Engstrom wanted to know if anyone was willing to volunteer to be the driver. Millard didn't hesitate to raise his hand. A short time later, after a green dodge was delivered to the police station, Millard, after a quick stop-off to change into civilian clothes, was on his way to Main Street to rendezvous with the robber. When he arrived, a crowd of nearly a thousand people had gathered in the freezing cold, held back by two police lines at the north and south end of the road. Parking the truck outside Woolworths, a few doors from the bank, Millard surveyed the scene. Two sets of officers with guns pointed at the bank were crouched down behind two cruisers parked each side of the building, while opposite the bank, a few doors down, two radio men hung out of windows clutching microphones in their hands, and on the roof opposite the bank, a marksman had also taken up a position. Feeling a little bolder, Millard eased the truck to a stop outside the bank's entrance, then swiftly jumped out and made his way to the front door. After Al Reed let him in, the robber, with the dead man's switch still firmly in his grasp, immediately accosted him and demanded to know if he was a police officer. Millard insisted he wasn't, and the man quickly relaxed. Precariously transferring the dead man's switch into his mouth again, he then handed the now completely stuffed duffel bag to Millard and instructed him to take it outside. After a false start, as the robber went back inside to collect a pistol he'd found in Al Reed's office, he and Millard stepped out of the bank's front door, drawing gasps from the assembled crowd. With the trigger device clamped between his teeth and the pistol in one hand, the robber followed Millard out to the truck. As Millard went to put the bag in the passenger seat, the robber pulled the trigger from his mouth and told him to put it in the back instead. A little further up the street to the north, Sergeant Robert Latane had watched all of this unfold from behind the scope of his rifle as he kept low behind the door of a police cruiser. He'd then watched, dumbfounded, as Millard disappeared behind the back of the truck 
and the robber simply walked away from him, then stepped out alone into the middle of the road, holding the dead man's switch out in his hand. Then Sergeant Latane took the shot. Millard had just enough time to see the robber's body crumple to the floor before he was sent high into the air and slammed back hard onto the tarmac. The next thing he remembered was a strange ringing in his ears and a hideous smell of burned flesh as blood streamed down the side of his face. Sergeant Latane's bullet had struck the robber in his chest, killing him almost instantly, in turn releasing the dead man's switch and setting off the dynamite inside his bag. The explosion had blown Millard 20 feet away, obliterated most of the windows of the surrounding buildings and splattered their facades in globules of flesh and blood, while all about, a hundred thousand Canadian dollars of cash rained down onto the street. As the many observers streamed forward to try and grab as much of it as they could, one witness, standing a block away from the explosion, stood staring in disbelief at the bloody, pulpy, severed hand that had just landed with a smack on the road in front of her. As detailed in Joe Ralco's 2017 book, The Devil's Gap, which provides a speculative account of this extraordinary story, one man who'd stayed to watch the attempted robbery was the manager of Kenora's Kenrissia Hotel. He'd watched with shock when the robber exited the bank wearing the exact same jacket that he'd seen on one of his hotel guests. As he swiftly informed the police, the man had checked in 17 days previously on April 23rd under the name of Paul Higgins of 435 Glen Drive in Toronto, Ontario. The manager had thought it odd that the man had booked a stay for two weeks only to then disappear for 10 days before returning on the 5th of May, five days before the robbery. Officers were dispatched immediately to the hotel to inspect the man's room where they found various bomb-making materials in the bathroom, as well as a number of maps and books, which suggested the man had been planning to hide out in the wild for some time. A Nazi picture book was also said to have been found among his possessions. One particular oddity was that all the labels of Higgins's clothes had been removed. Nonetheless, with everything they seemingly needed to formally identify the man, Kenora police promptly contacted their counterparts in Toronto to confirm the details. Only, as it turned out, Paul Higgins didn't exist, and neither did 435 Glen Drive. The man had made it all up, with no evidence of him found listed on any public record, from passport to driver's license and taxes. Fingerprints taken from the severed hand were checked against a database of over 45 million individuals, but that also led nowhere. Despite exhaustive efforts to find anyone that might know him, the police were eventually forced to concede defeat. To this day, the identity of the man who had become known as effectively Canada's first suicide bomber remains a complete mystery. Thank you to Jordan Dunford for suggesting this week's story. 
If you enjoy Unexplained and would like to help support us, you can now do so via Patreon. To receive access to ad-free episodes, just go to patreon.com forward slash unexplained pod to sign up. Unexplained the book and audiobook, featuring 10 stories that have never before been covered on the show, is now available to buy worldwide. You can purchase through Amazon, Barnes & Noble and Waterstones, among other bookstores. All elements of Unexplained, including the show's music, are produced by me, Richard McLean Smith. Please subscribe and rate the show wherever you listen to podcasts, and feel free to get in touch with any thoughts or ideas regarding the stories you've heard on the show. Perhaps you have an explanation of your own you'd like to share. You can reach us online at unexplainedpodcast.com or Twitter at unexplainedpod and Facebook at facebook.com forward slash unexplainedpodcast.com.